So thanks for doing this. How are you doing? I'm good. I'm doing You're not great. retired yet? No, not yet. I guess so. Hello, I'm Annette, and thank you for listening to my podcast. Today, I'm interviewing my friend, David Hudson, a longtime friend, longtime individual involved in supporting education in our community, former chair of the board of Panhandle 2020 back in the day. And thanks for being on here, David. Oh, you're welcome. I'm glad to. It's great to uh, talk with you again. And I guess I ought to say you're here today because of your role as the head of Excel Energy uh, in this part of the Texas Panhandle and, and beyond. So tell, tell the audience a little bit about yourself and then we'll talk about XL Energy, okay? Sure, I'll be glad to. Yes, I'm president of XL Energy's New Mexico and Texas operations, which the legal entity is Southwestern Public Service Companies, SPS. It's actually the same legal entity it's always been since the 1940s. It's just now we're wholly owned by XL Energy Inc. And we use the brand's name of XL Energy but I'm president over our New Mexico and Texas operations. So it includes about 93 towns and cities in Eastern New Mexico, South Plains of Texas, and then up to the Texas Panhandle. And of course, we're the electric utility for this region. So mainly the towns and cities, and then we're surrounded by electric co-ops. Great. I know I've always been thankful to be a customer of XL Energy, especially during the time I went to India and I saw the energy systems there were run the electrical uh, wiring and such. And I also very much appreciated being part of Excel Energy Grid last February in Texas. So it was a very different experience yeah. across the state of Texas. It was. And I, I feel like we were fortunate here. And we'll talk about why later here a little bit. Yeah. But go ahead and talk about how Excel gets its energy, how it makes its yeah. energy, I guess it makes our energy. Yeah, I'll just start from, uh, you know, of course, we're electric energy. And uh, uh, some unique things about electric energy is it's produced the instant that it's demanded by the customer. You know, whenever you turn on your light switch or turn on your oven or your air conditioner, that exact moment, that power is being generated by one of our generators. Instantly, you know, the electromagnetic magnetic forces travel at the speed of light through the wires. And we, pro we provide a very high quality service in that it has to be in very tight voltage tolerances, but also it's perfect 60 Hertz waveform. In other words, the power is going back and forth in your lines 60 times a second. Uh, you know, and so it follows a sine wave over time. You know, people don't realize, uh, but throughout the 20th century, starting at the beginning, utilities started to connect to each other, and mainly it was towns and cities that would connect together to get economies of scale. And, you know, the price of electricity was really dropping through the early, uh, you know, 1900s. And then, uh, but they were also connecting from the coasts. So you had the East Coast, you had the West Coast, and then you had the Gulf Coast of Texas. And so you actually started getting these grids coming from, developing from these three coasts 
What was unique though, is you had the, the uh, grid in Texas was coming from the Gulf Coast. Now we're so isolated up here in the Panhandle, it really wasn't until the 1970s that we really connected with other utilities. And it was far easier actually for us to connect to Oklahoma than to connect to utilities further south of us. So we are actually part of, in, in SPS, in Texas and New Mexico, we're part of the Eastern Interconnect. So our generators are connected and it's one giant electric magnetic machine all the way from Eastern New Mexico to the East Coast. And so for instance, when they saw the big blackout, uh, you know, 20 years ago around the Great Lakes that took New York City down and stuff like that, we could actually see, feel that on our electric system here because we're all electrically connected. Now we're, you know, SPS, Excel Energy, New Mexico, Texas, we're actually the very Southwest corner of the whole Eastern Interconnect. To the West of us is the Western Interconnect. So Albuquerque and everything further West is tied into the West Coast grid. Then you have what's called the Electric Reliability Council of Texas that's downstate from us. It's wholly within the state, which makes it uh, governance totally a state issue instead of being an interstate commerce and regulated by the federal government. And so that's why Texas has always wanted to preserve that. But we're not part of that grid. Now that's the grid that suffered so heavily during the winter storm. They lost a lot of generation during the winter storm. Whereas we up here you know, on our system, we actually were long on capacity through the whole event. Now we were very concerned because we were losing natural gas supply during this, and we can talk about that. So let's back up just a little bit. And did you talk about the renewables that? Uh, no, not yet. I mean, okay. we, we do have a lot of renewables on our system. You know, it's always been a secret that the wind blows a lot in the panhandle. <laughs> a couple of days ago, it wasn't a secret. <laughs> yeah, Thursday was a was a real humdinger. In fact, I was going down the interstate trying to see if I could see one of our big wind farms south of Plainview and goes down to Petersburg. And you couldn't see it because of the dust. But oh. it, was, and it was generating a lot of power. I wondered if you had to shut them down on such windy days. Well, on, there are over speeds on, on the wind turbines. If the winds are blowing probably over 55 miles an hour, they start cutting out because you just don't want them to, uh, they'll, they'll cut out and feather out basically like a prop yeah. airplane would do because you just don't want to tear up the blades or, or cause the towers to start getting a vibration in them that, that would bring down the tower. Let's go back to why we aren't on ERCOT. We have a mutual friend, I'm sure, Pete Smith, who I remember was very proud of the fact that we didn't end up joining ERCOT. He was an electrical engineer, retired now. But explain why that was important or the politics of how yeah, it's, we stayed it's out really, or why we stayed out. It, it is largely a, a result of two things. One is we're closer up here in the Panhandle and South Plains to other states. So SBS in the, since the 40s has been integrating across state lines to its New Mexico communities. You know, now we have lots of lines across Texas and New Mexico. Then we also cross Oklahoma, especially the Panhandle and literally go all the way up into the middle of uh, Western Kansas. Uh, so we're in interstate commerce. Now downstate, their grid or ERCOT 
is totally within the state of Texas. So it's totally regulated by the state legislature and the PUC. There's no federal real, there's no real meaningful federal regulation of their grid. And that's why they've never been interested in connecting to us is because we would change that dynamic because we're in interstate commerce. Maybe describe for the listeners what we're talking about when we say the grid. Okay, the grid, you know, uh, like I said, it's, it's electrons moving at the speed of light back and forth, you know, uh, 60 pounds a second. Um, and so it takes a very complex grid of generators. And they're literally the simple way to explain it is you've got magnets passing by a wire. And as they pass by that wire, they're pushing and pulling uh, the electron. And so that's how you get your power that's going to be driving your consuming device, whether it's your, your blender or, or whatever it is. Um, and so to get there, you have a grid of generators that are supporting an overall collective set of customers, then you have wires that get to them. And the, the most efficient way to get it to a customer is to move it up to very high voltage so you can reduce the current in the lines. Um, it's electrical engineering and physics phenomenon. And then you can efficiently move that power great distances over large bulk transmission lines. Those are the high lines that you see that are running between communities. Then it gets to your distribution substation in your town. Uh, you'll see a substation all, you see substations all around town. It's moving that power down to a lower voltage where we can distribute it over distribution lines down major streets and alleys to your actual place. Then literally there's the last transformer that's taking it down. And that's the transformer in your alley. It takes it down to the voltage that you're using in your house. And usually it's 110 to 220 volts. Great, um, thanks. But it's, it's, it's all a giant network and it all works together. Uh, we design it so that if we lose an element of the high voltage lines, the rest of them can still get power to your distribution substation. And when your power goes out in your house, it's usually because something from that substation to your house has been sensed to be wrong. And we turn it off to protect life and property. That, that's why it goes out, um, to make sure somebody's not getting hurt. Well, thank you for that. <laughs> so. Our friend Wes Reeves talked about the difference between an energy-only supplier like ERCOT is and then a capacity, maybe I don't have the terminology right, yeah, but, but increased capacity backup like Excel has. Can you explain that a little bit better? Well, and I'm trying gets, to. <laughs> yeah, it, it all gets down to the phenomena that electricity is produced the instant it's consumed. Usually for us, it's the last two weeks of July and the first two weeks of August. That's when our highest demand is at any instant in time. It's because everybody, it's very hot uh, and everybody's got the air conditioners running. All the businesses are running. And so we have to have enough generating capacity to meet that peak demand. And then throughout the rest of the year, we'll turn units off to maintain them because we don't need as many units online. The load is a lot lower. Uh, but in the federal system, which we're part of, you have to plan to have enough capacity, plus you have to have uh, basically a 15% capacity reserve margin, just in case something breaks at that time of extreme heat. Uh, or you may have missed forecast what your peak was going to be. You know, 
So we have what's called a capacity and capacity reserve system. Uh, but we also buy and sell energy, you know, every hour in the Southwest Power Pool. We're part of the Southwest Power Pool Regional Transmission Organization. Now in ERCOT, they have decided since it's all within the state of Texas, that they are gonna have an energy only market. They're not gonna plan for capacity. They're gonna say the economics or the free market will decide how much capacity is built based on how prices and scarcity prices go up in the summertime and stuff like that. The issue with that is you could be caught where you don't have enough generation because it takes time to develop generation. It just, it's not like uh, you can just move something in right away, you know, like a, an airplane, if they decided there's a market somewhere they can start flying there that day. Uh, it's not like that for electric generation. So that's the difference is usually downstate in ERCOT, they're usually a little bit behind on having capacity because they don't have all the proper price signals to develop capacity to meet, meet the demand. So last February, we'll talk about kind of what happened there. We all know we had a a super intense cold snap and and weather challenge hit Texas and and lots of the country. But just a few weeks ago, I saw there was an announcement that ERCOT was worried about capacity, uh, electrical capacity, and it was a very pleasant day across Texas. It wasn't one of the high need things, what what might be going on there? Well, I think, you know, from what I understand is they had a number of generating units down for repairs. And they did back uh, last February during the cold spell. Also, there wasn't much wind. And it's, but the temperatures were still pretty high. So what that causes higher demand, but not enough generation online. So they went into an alert mode. You know, it was to the point where they were actually starting rotating outages, like like what we saw last February. And it it got so deep and severe last February that literally people were out for days because there just was nothing else to cut. They were so short on generating capacity. So a lot of the work you do is governed both by feds and state regulations. And after this, this, you know, debacle in February, everyone was hoping the legislature would address it and demand some changes in ERCOT's uh, weatherization or whatever. Can you talk about what they actually did? Um, yeah, I mean, no. You know, for instance, we're three thousand seven hundred feet up in. You know elevation here in the Panhandle, and we get very cold weather here every winter. You know we get we get below zero every winter, so we have winterized our plants. If you ever looked at our power plants, the boiler structures are enclosed. There's a hard wall around them, and that's that's the reason is we don't want the cold air to be hitting the sensing lines, the pneumatic tubes, and stuff like that that are around a boiler. Uh, because once they don't sense correctly, it, the boiler has to shut down for safety. You don't want, you certainly don't want a boiler to blow up. Um, downstate, they're all open air boilers because it gets so hot downstate. And uh, I, you, I can see why, but it's just not able to handle uh, 
minus zero weather downstate. They just don't very see it. They don't see it very often. They did see it in 2011. So winterization of power plants was a big focus coming out of the legislature, making sure that everybody's following that. We're going to see criteria coming out of the feds also on that. Uh, I think we'll easily meet those. We had a few issues on some of our power plants, and we have already identified what we need to do there. It's not a lot. But they were mainly power plants around Hobbs, uh, where we just don't see that cold weather. Um, the other big issue that's still out there is just natural gas production. You know, when natural gas comes out of the ground, it has a lot of water and other liquids in it. So when it comes out of the ground, it's warm. But once it starts hitting those cold pipes, and if they're not insulated, that water and stuff starts freezing. And then it ultimately starts clogging up the lines. And so you lose gas production. That was another big phenomenon during the February storm. And that's what scared me the most is we got almost 70% of our firm gas supply curtailed because they were unable to get the gas out of the ground and through the processing plants and get it to us. But gas is very, it's, it's very unregulated. And so that's why we saw gas prices going up to $200 in MMBTU. Right now it's $6, which is still very high. It's, it's twice of what it was two years ago today. Um, but it went up even more than $200. And it's because the production shut down and uh, all the generators in ERCOT and, and then us outside of ERCOT, you know, we, we need that gas to power our power plants. And, uh, so we were scrambling, bringing gas down from Colorado on some pipelines uh, to, to find other sources. It's the natural gas part that I'm really worried that, uh, you know, the Railroad Commission has to focus on making sure that producers are investing in their systems so that they can meet these extreme situations. But largely natural gas production is deregulated. So it's... I, I... I suspect that at least before then, the average citizen didn't realize the huge interconnectedness of the natural gas, you know, sources and resources yeah. to our electrical grid. Yeah, that's right. And of course, the natural gas industry is saying, well, the reason that we froze up is because we lost power and we lost power and it caused our gas to quit moving. And so it froze up in the, in the pipe. So there's a lot of finger pointing going on there. But this is the second time in the last 10 years where we have realized up here that we're really dependent on ERCOT. If ERCOT's not working right, then our gas supply that comes from the Permian Basin or comes from the Eagle for further downstate gets constrained. And then we're the ones holding the bag trying to figure out how we're going to, to meet our demand. But I was, I was really proud uh, during the event. Uh, we do have uh, meteorologists meteorologist uh, in Denver who forecasted that this was coming uh, two weeks out. So we actually started turning on all of our coal plants and actually had one that had a tube leak rupture uh, here at Harrington Station. We shut it down and the guys got in there a day later, uh, welded it back to where it needed to be and we brought it back before the cold air hit. Go team, that's great. Yeah. But it wasn't until one week later that we forecasted, and I think the state started to see it too, the cold air mass was going to go way past us. And it was going to go all the way through Texas and into the Gulf of Mexico. And you know, on that Friday before the uh, Valentine's 
Valentine's Day weekend, that's why gas prices really shot up. It's because all of the market activity saw that production was going to start getting shut in. Well, you know, I'll just harken back to those that week here. Um, I think I think it was kind of like two weeks that we had to really kind of the schools and Emerald College both, you know, closed down to try to reduce the, you know, the pull on the gas and the electrical. And, uh, you know, so it's a huge impact on us, but it, if my, if my lights flickered once, that was it, you know, and and some people, I know they had a little bit of rolling blackouts, but my goodness, I felt so sorry for my friends across the state. Yeah, downstate it was devastating because uh, they lost power, and you lose power in a house or an apartment building. Eventually, things start freezing up when it's so cold outside. Yeah. Then you've got bust lines. You've just got broken swimming pools, even in ground yeah. pools that erupt. Yeah, yeah, I mean, but the, yeah, you you think about if you've got a water line break and it's going through the wall, it destroys the wall carpet. I mean, it, it, your furniture. Now here, we actually did have two rotating outages. First time we've ever had one. It was directed by the Southwest Power Pool and it's part of the federal law that we have to abide by their instructions. But other utilities in the state, mainly in Oklahoma and Kansas were really short. They were not ready for this cold weather. So we all had to take a pro rata reduction to keep the system up and running. So I think that Monday morning after after Valentine's Day, so it was the 15th, we had like a 45 minute rotating outage. I know I saw it at my house, it was out. Uh, actually, mine turned out to be an hour and a half, but it should have, you know, I said, we have to work on our messaging here because <laughs> I was going to say it was going to be 45. Uh, but then the next day we had a short one too, but it's really because the whole pool was short. We were actually long. And by us being long on capacity, we were selling our excess power at very high prices into the pool and those margins that we get back, we credit back to our customers. We don't make money. We make like 10% off of that uh, overall. But that really lessened uh, the impact that we had on our customers. So I think we had like a $200 million gas bill, which is very high for us for just those few days. We brought it down to like $90 million after the credit of these sales margins. And it's because we were able to keep our plants running and sell that excess power to others in the pool. It's fascinating to learn about all this to me. I mean, I enjoy understanding the world around me. And so this is certainly part of the world around all of us. And and we see what happens when systems fail. And for, unfortunately for many in Texas, they did. Yeah. Thank you for keeping ours going. <laughs> yeah, well, I, I mean, I, I am proud of our workforce. I mean, literally, we had gas turbines that were bringing in constant, you know, they basically are jet engines with an inlet, and they have a filter on that inlet. And uh, they started sucking in water vapor from some of the cooler towers and it was freezing ice on the inlets. We had guys out there with, brushes and hammers knocking the ice of those. Can you imagine that with that cold air just coming oh, no. right past them? Yeah, they were out there working on it. So I'm really proud of all of our production employees keeping our transmission grid up. It, it, we did fine. 
but there's other storms. Are, and if you remember last October, we had winter storm Billy and a terrible ice storm, one of the worst ice yep. storms we've ever seen. And it just hit the whole eastern panhandle. Well, and ice storms are bad here. Well, anywhere, I would guess, that wherever you have trees and wires above ground. And that's, yeah. you know, yeah. that's a lot of our neighborhoods. Wherever you have wires and that it just freezes to that wire and it just accumulates. And then when you have wind, it starts swinging it around and just tears up the structure. That's, yeah. that's our worst nightmare. What needs to happen going forward for the, you know, meeting the needs of a growing Texas? We're not, you know, we're not growing here like they're growing in the wet, lots of Texas, but the energy needs are only going to increase. Yeah, absolutely. I mean, you look at Amarillo, we're really growing here. Lowest unemployment rate in the whole state. There's just a lot of economic activity. I think Amarillo's is booming as much as it ever has. If you, you know, you can just tell by looking at the housing market and everything else. Uh, so we are always planning ahead because it takes years to build the infrastructure to put it in. Uh, we predict in the late 19, I mean, on 2020s, we'll need additional generating capacity for our system. I think largely it's gonna come from additional renewables, uh, but probably natural gas generation too, that we can turn on and off. What's really important is like today, there's not much wind today. Um, we do have solar, you know, wind on a annual basis makes up about 36% of our energy production. Solar is about 2%. I think we can plant, you can count on solar a lot more than you can on wind. Because you know, like days like today, or even in in August, usually we our highest peak is when there's high pressure and zero wind outside. Um, but you can plan on solar. You know, you know when the sun comes up, and you know when it goes down. The clouds affected a little bit, but not massively. But we're still going to need rotating mass on the system to keep that perfect sixty hertz and keep those magnets spinning past the, the wires. So since my podcast focus area is more on education in general um, but I think we're educating the community about about the infrastructure and and the different grids and such which I think is really valuable but Xcel energy even before you were president uh, and CEO has been a big supporter of public education and for that I thank you <laughs> so talk about why, your energy company is interested in education? Well, I mean, it gets to, for several reasons. Um, I mean, personally, myself, both of my parents were educators. My father was a professor at Texas Tech in agriculture. Through that, I knew I didn't want to do agriculture. I wanted to go into uh, engineering instead. Um, and my mother was a second grade teacher for decades uh, down in Lubbock. Uh, then, um, then my wife had worked for AISD, Mrs. Sue or Miss Sue. Um, but I, I think it really gets down to, I think education is so essential for just our society going forward in the future. And I also think it's important to, uh, to, to make a, a meaningful wage, a living wage. People have to have some sort of skill and it takes education to have that skill. And so I've always been a huge supporter for public education because that's the only way it's going to get done. Um, you know, I am conservative, but I also believe in conservative uh, and uh, 
public public education uh, because otherwise you're just going to get further split in in our population and, and uh, you're going I think that you know exacerbate poverty and stuff and stuff like that. Uh, as far as Exo Energy, I mean we really depend on our local uh, population to provide our future workforce. And we really focus on that because we can bring in engineers or linemen from other parts of the country, but usually for various reasons, they go back to where their families are. So a key thing is to develop our workforce locally. And that's why we think education is so important, including uh, you know college degrees, but more than that, just the uh, the skilled labor that we have, you know, to me, a journeyman lineman is the same thing as having a four-year college degree. Because you go through a four-year apprenticeship, it's just your classroom is outside, out there fixing stuff, building stuff, uh, and learning the, the safety of you. It's so important that you understand the safety because you're dealing with, you know, hundreds if not thousands of volts of power that will kill you. Uh, so oh, yeah. you got to understand how to work with that. Does Excel, do you need workers right now? Or, or is there a... Oh, we're, we're always hiring. You know, we hire through our ExcelEnergy.com website. And you just look up careers. But every week, I, you know, I tell people that's how we hire. And you need to check on that every week because it changes every week. We're always hiring. And we're, and it's because people are leaving, uh, but they're also, we've got, we're constantly having retirements, you know? And so we're always hiring for all types of skills. That's what I love about working in my industry is the scope of operations is phenomenal. You know, we buy fuel, we have it transported, we convert that energy into electrical energy, we boost it up and we transmit it, and then we distribute it, we bill it, we deal with customers uh, on paying their bills. You know, it's just there's so many different careers that are involved in that whole scope of operation. That's interesting. And I had a gentleman knock on my door the other day to come put a smart meter in. So I now oh, have did. a smart meter. Mm -hmm. ah, okay. I'm in a house that has a fence that's too tall. Oh, okay. And so I'm always texting them or emailing y'all a picture of my meter to show them. Yeah. <laughs> and okay, he said, so you don't have to do that anymore. Yeah. Well, that is our plan, and uh, you know we've confused people with our legal notice on that, but it's going to be a lot more efficient. And what's going to be interesting about it is these meters will be able to talk to us, say, "Hey, this person's meter is dead. I'm dead. I'm a meter, and I'm dead here." Yeah. Uh, and then we'll get all of these. We can predict exactly what happened based on that information. Right now, it's basically by people calling in and us starting to assimilate that. But we can a lot quicker determine where the fall point was. Great. Well, is there anything else our listeners need to know about how they can conserve energy, uh, just how they can make sure we're good stewards of what you provide us as well, because it's all interconnected? Well, you know, if you go to exoenergy.com, you can see uh, find ways to conserve energy in your homes or businesses. We also have uh, different energy efficiency programs that we work on. So you get a hold of Brian Woodson through that. Uh, you know, also just keep in mind, you know, we 
about 38% of our energy this year is going to come from renewables, which is carbon-free. Uh, but the, re the big reason that it's so economical is we get substantial tax credits from it. But what's really great is we don't use any groundwater to cool the steam plant. And so oh, that's interesting. Living, yeah, we don't. You know, that's another big issue that we see in the future is, is using groundwater to cool power plants. We're going to be going to different technologies that are using basically like a radiator in your car where you're just running air to cool the, cool the, the steam. Uh, about 30% of our energy comes from coal, 32% comes from natural gas, and then we buy other types of energy on our system. Um, our goal corporate-wide is to be carbon-free by 2050. That's an XL-wide goal. Now, we, we're planning to be actually 80% carbon-free by the year 2030. Now, I think we'll be, at SPS, we'll be lagging that a little bit. Economics are really important for us, whereas Colorado and Minnesota, they want them to get there as fast as possible. We think we really got to moderate it for economics here, but we see ways of doing it, and it depends on what federal legislation comes out. We may be going and grabbing more renewables, using tax incentives to do that, because it's in our customers' economic interest to do that. And that's really why we've done that so far. Uh, but we really appreciate our customers. And it is a very complicated business, and a lot of people don't pay attention to it. They just turn on their switches or their devices and then see the bill come once a month, and that's when they're they're thinking about it. Well, during that week when they asked us to conserve, it was, you know, it was pretty dark in my house because it wasn't very sunny outside. And I kept the thermostat down, built the fire, and wore as many yeah. clothes as I could function in. Well, so, that's, you know, that was my a, attempt there. But Yeah, well, we appreciate it. And, I mean, it is, uh, it takes a village to keep everything together. So thanks for playing your part. Well, David, thank you so much for, for doing the work that you do and for being a supporter in the community of so many things that, that we need support for. And thank you for being on my podcast. And thank you for listening to Annette on Education. <laughs>